living in wartime is is unique and 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 it has different characteristics. I remember in um, just the 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 first uh, military conflict that I remember in our, our nation being involved in in any kind of large scale way. Uh, I was in the eighth grade, and I remember seeing the beginning of the first Gulf War. Uh, with my uh, parents, my brother. My, it was my mom's birthday, so um, I think the I think the conflict began on the 17th, but the early morning of the 17th in in um, in Kuwait, and and so this would have been the 16th, the evening of the 16th here. And so I'm we opened presents, ate a meal, and then we heard and turned on the TV, and we sat there and just glued to the television, watching these missiles fired and rockets launched and 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 I just remember there as, as an eighth grader just thinking what does this mean uh, this is again first time in young life just trying to come to grips with what does this mean and I remember being afraid and just being sobered by uh, is this is this going to what's this going to change for our, our nation for I mean personally my life and what what is this what does this all this mean and and that and that was uh, obviously a, a brief military conflict and though there there was follow up to do I and I still struggle to to imagine what it was like to live through World War II have this long conflict and worldwide in scope or even in Vietnam and just this long uh, military campaign and and to live in wartime I mean I know our kids are growing up and calling a war on terror, and it's a different kind of war. I mean, there's this constant kind of threat of terrorism, there's things and, uh, and responses to that, but it's different. Um, but there, there, the reality is, is there is no such thing as peacetime for, for us as if we talk about God's world and, and, and where we live. It's, it's, always, it's always wartime. It's a struggle that's been going on for several thousand years and this is what trip is alluding to here it's a it's a war that did have a beginning and it will have an end but right now it's it's always war um and uh, but again it, it did begin it, it hasn't always been this way there 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 from for eternity past god has always existed father son holy spirit and perfect fellowship and communion and 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 so perfect peace and Glory that's displayed and known and enjoyed among the triune God for eternity past. And so, so, so in God's infinite wisdom though, He created this world. We talked about this last week and, and everything in this world and, and, and not because He was bored, not because He lacked anything. He was in want or He was unsatisfied or bored or, or, or just just needed something else. It's not, it's not it. That's not why He made everything in this world. No, God made the heavens and the earth and the mountains and the oceans and trees and deserts and all things, large beasts and microscopic uh, organisms that we, some, some of which we probably haven't even seen or don't even know about yet. Uh, so all of this incredible detail, incredible design is a manifestation of His greatness and His glory. It all, it's, it's all, all of it. And, and yet unique in creation, He made man. He made man, he made humans, male and female, in his image, the scriptures say. And so we're made in God's image. We, we're, we're, we're designed uh, with the capacity to know God, to love Him, to worship Him, to enjoy Him, to, 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 to trust Him, to delight in Him, to depend on Him, to have our whole lives uh, oriented to Him. 
This is, this is how God made us. This is how we were designed. We're, as we saw this last week, hardwired for awe, for awe of God. This is His creative design. He's the loving, all-powerful Creator. We are His creatures and made for His glory, made for relationship with Him. This is what Adam and Eve, we talked about this morning, enjoyed in the garden. And, and, and it's this perfect intimacy with, with God and with one another. No sin, no guilt, no shame, no, no problems. Paradise. Truly paradise. But then it was broken. And since then, war. <laughs> since sin entered, there's war. There's, there's struggle. And the war goes on today. That's just what um, uh, the author is talking about in the second chapter. And really it parallels the fourth chapter. This war of awe, as we'll see. And so I'm, I'm not going to... We're not going to, I'm not going to teach the chapters. I'm not going to use the same points that, uh, as he's made it. I know some of you are reading it, so it will be redundant. Others of you have not read. That's okay. Uh, I'm going to summarize these two chapters in, with just six statements tonight. And then I want us to get into the scriptures. And we're going to look in First and Second Samuel and just see a biblical example of this struggle. So that's where we're going. So real quick, let me just walk through six kind of summary statements that... that that show what what Trip is, is is saying with this in these chapters. First thing, and we've already said this, is there is a war. Uh, just let's just state it. Since the fall, and until the new heavens and the new earth, there there we are living during wartime, not peacetime. There is this struggle, and this is we saw it again even this morning in Ephesians two there that that every human being born is at enmity with God. There is this struggle. Since the fall, there is a struggle. We are, we are not born doing what we were made to do, which is glorify God. And so there's, there's struggle, constant struggle in our hearts. Will we be, as Tripp says, in awe of God or, will, or something else, uh, someone else? Who will we worship? Who will we trust? Who will we, who will we obey? And in the absence of awe of God, it's not like we're just left with this empty void. We replace it with something else. And, and so if we're not in, in awe of God, if our lives aren't oriented to Him, then they're going to be somewhere else. And so that's, so that's the, that's the, there is a war. Second statement is that the war is old. The war is old. We said this already, but it goes, it's as old as humanity. It goes back to Adam. Um, it, it goes back to the garden. Genesis 3. Adam and Eve had every, everything. No sin, no disease, no pain, no want, no death, no regret, no sorrow, no guilt, no separation from God. Um, so what happened? Well, you know the story. We'll have time to go back as Tripp does and kind of capture all that again. But, but the devil baited the hook for Adam and Eve. And what was the hook? It, it wasn't... It wasn't the fruit, it wasn't, man, that's, that's, you know, don't eat from this tree, but, but that's the really good fruit, that's a good tree. It wasn't an apple, I know, I got a picture of an apple, uh, but that, that wasn't that this tree, I mean, we were up in North Georgia apple picking uh, this last Monday, and, and I was just thinking of, which is a kind of, when you think about it, it's kind of a ridiculous activity. We're paying somebody to do what their, you know, to do with their, their job, basically. But we go up there, we pick apples, but it, I just imagine if there was this one tree, you know, the sun just shining down on this, on the top of the hill, and this beautiful, lush fruit, and it's like, that's the really, really good fruit. And so, you know, it's, but don't touch it, there's a fence around here, you can't cross that. That's not, 
It's not about the fruit, and, and you know this. What the serpent held out to Adam and Eve was the opportunity to stand in the Creator's place. It says, you can be like God. You can be like God if you just eat this fruit. You, you, you can, if you cross over God's boundaries, you, will, you can have God's position. That was the, that was the bait. And so, so you can have this God-like knowledge, God-like control and power and centrality. Just eat. And so they did, and sin entered, and this God-centeredness, this God-awe is suddenly replaced with self-centeredness and awe of things that God has made and ultimately ourselves. And so the war began, and history was forever changed, and it goes on even to today. And so we can't overstate the change that happened at the fall. I, I, I know we were so familiar with it, but every... It's just this complete change in the order. And, and, it's, and this is the world, that, this is the air we breathe, so it's all we know is this struggle, 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 struggle. But it will end. And there is a new heavens and a new earth, and all that was lost will be restored uh, one day. But, but now, now is struggle. And it began in the fall. And Paul gives us one of the clearest statements of this in Romans chapter 1. And... For the sake of time, we don't. I was hoping we could read the whole passage together, but I do want to get to, to Samuel in a minute. But Romans one, this is one of the darkest passages in Scripture, certainly in the New Testament. Just characterizing the Paul describing the fallen world and the depraved world, and so Romans one and just a dark passage. But but essentially, what he's saying is every person since Adam, including Adam, and since Adam and Eve, every sinner has has replaced. Exchange the, the what, what Tripp is describing, and I, I think it's, well, I'll use it is that all of God and replaced it with something else. And so this is the word you see throughout this Romans one and eighteen and following. There, it's this it, was exchanged, exchanged, exchanged. It's replaced. And so this is the essence of sin that Paul says we need to be rescued from by God's grace. And, and let's just look verse twenty five, uh, Romans one verse twenty five. Because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshipped and served the creature rather than the Creator who is blessed forever. So this is, this is it. So this is, this is an old war. Third, the war is everywhere and involves everyone. This is the war that rages in all hearts. We're all natural born glory thieves. We, we suppress the truth, as Paul says in Romans 1, of, of who God is and, and, and the glory He deserves. And we give it to other lesser things, ultimately ourselves. And, and, and so, so this, if we talk, we talk about uh, when we, missions conference coming up and well, missional living. And one of the things that, dr- that drives us and compels us and motivates us in missions is, is, is the glory of God among the nations. That every, every person is born into this world not worshipping God, but worshipping idols and worshipping themselves, worshipping other things and not giving glory to the true God. So what compels us is, is yes, it's compassion and for the suffering and the misery that they experience without Christ. But ultimately there's this greater motivation. It's that they will become, they will be changed from rebels to worshippers of God. And so this is the passion for the glory of God that, that moves us to go and to go with the gospel uh, to the nations. And so 
Again, this is what we're saying is that, that, that the, every person is born into the state. There's, the, 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 there's this, this void of, of awe of God in the natural man. But even as believers, even as those who trust in Christ and, and we have this reorientation of our life, this is still a perennial struggle. The, that we still have this, this, this battle that rages. And we see it, you see it in the disciples of Christ. You see it all over with the disciples in the New Testament, the gospel accounts. And this continues to pop up. But as Jesus is nearing the cross and his death is, is right in, his, in the forefront of his mind, and what are the disciples arguing about? Who, who's going to sit on the right and the left in the kingdom? And what, what place of honor that, which disciple, which disciple, uh, which place of honor are the disciples going to have? And who's going to have it? And who's going to be the best? And who's going to be the greatest? And so that, that discussion, that argument among the disciples, you see it in Mark 9, 30, 37. It's not, it's not theological. It's not just about confusion on doctrine. That's not it. It's, it's, uh, Tripp says it like this. Disciples are trapped in the cul-de-sac of their own grandeur. They, are, they were followers of the Messiah, but they placed themselves at the center of the story. And that's, that's why I say it. When we have this, this ongoing struggle, even as believers, we all fight this battle. This battle. I struggle to remember that, that, that there is a greater story than my little story. And you know, it shows up in all kinds of ways. I, I mean, the, 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 the most important things to me are how I'm affected. And so when I watch the news, it's only, if, if the story doesn't have any direct connection to me, who cares? And so this is how people watch the news and, and world stuff happening over there. Syria, big deal. You know, but the economy right here, that, that affects me. And so, so we have this perspective. It's, it's that there, that there's the, that there is more than, that matters than me and how I'm doing. That's a struggle to believe that. And so this is the battle that rages. And, and then fourth, fourth statement. I, I'm trying to hurry up, I'm sorry. I'm trying to edit as I go. The, that the war is over territory. The war is over territory. It's a turf war. It's, it's over the, that, what we talked about last week, that all capacity of the human heart that we all have. And so, so who's going to rule and control that God-given all capacity that was designed for His glory and His worship and and, and relationship with Him, and trust in Him, and joy in Him, but because of sin, that 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 space has been kidnapped um, by other things. And so, in grace, God God does battle for the all of our hearts. And and you could you could as you talk about the the redemptive purpose of God and the story that's being worked out through Scripture and even to today, and will continue is continuing to be worked out. It's God restoring and bringing His worship back to Himself, bringing all back to Himself, recapturing our hearts for His glory. And 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 so it's a war over territory. Fifth, this war has casualties and consequences. When, when the awe of God that we were designed for is replaced with awe of self or awe of other things, that it will have consequences. I, I'm just going to read a paragraph from his book. This is page 55 and 56. But just listen, and, and you know how this would affect, how this shows up in a church, how it shows up in a marriage, how it shows up in a parent-child relationship, how it shows up in, in any number of ways. We, he says this, we, when, when, when this happens, when we have this this replaced the awe of God with awe of self. We curse whatever gets in our way. We hate having to wait. We get upset when we have to go without. We strike back when we think we have been wronged. We do all we can to satisfy our cravings. 
We think too much about our own pleasure. We envy those who have what we think we deserve. We pout when we think we have been overlooked. We hate suffering of any kind. We manipulate others for our own good. We attempt to work ourselves into positions of power and control. We are obsessed about what is best for us. We demand more than we serve and take more than we give. We long to be first and hate being last. We are all too concerned with being right, being noticed, and being affirmed. We find it easier to judge those who have offended us than to forgive them. We require life to be predictable, satisfying, and easy. We do all these things because we are full of ourselves, in all more of ourselves than of God. Sounds like a great place to live, isn't it? You, you, you can see the effect that that has. And, and then finally, is that the war will end. The war will end. There is, there is an end in sight. Revelation, the theme of the book of Revelation, I remember Dr. Mayhew saying, just Jesus wins. <laughs> he wins. And, it, and his mission to turn self-absorbed rebels into God-focused, God-centered worshipers will will be successful. It will not fail. And, and what, he's, what he's done to ensure that it will not fail is he sent his own son into this world. This is where the gospel comes in. This is, this is part of one, of one way that Jesus' mission is expressed. It's expressed in other ways. But in 2 Corinthians 5, Paul says it like this, verse 15, Christ died for all that those who live might no longer live for themselves but for Him who for their sake died and was raised. That's part of Christ's mission is to rescue us and save us from that self-focus, self-absorption, self-awe, and let us live for His glory. The only thing worth living for. That was a quick overview. <laughs> and if you had not read the chapters, maybe there was, a, there were some, some, there was something missed in that. But... I want us to look at a biblical illustration of this. And I turn to 1 Samuel chapter 4 with me. And we'll spend the minutes we have remaining in 1 Samuel. 1 Samuel 4. And so I want us to look at one episode in Scripture of this larger narrative that we see, again, throughout the Bible. And, and Tripp in chapter 2 basically walks through many scenes in, in, the, in the Old Testament and the New Testament of seeing this, this battle continuing to rage and so we're going to kind of look at one episode in, in, in this war of all. And, and the main character in 1 Samuel 4, 1 Samuel 4 is where we are tonight, is, is, is a box. <laughs> it's, a, it's the Ark, the Ark of the Covenant. And that's kind of the leading character. It's the, that sacred chest. It had the Ten Commandments. It had the, the golden pot of manna and the, uh, and the rod of Aaron. And so it's the most sacred object for for Israel during that wilderness period and it's the only piece of furniture in the in the in the in the innermost room of the tabernacle the holy of holies it's this ark of the covenant and so you, you get a description in Exodus chapter 37 1 to 9 of of this of this ark it's this kind of coffin like box made of acacia wood overlaid with gold and has these four rings of gold on each corner of the box and poles that were inserted through those so that the ark could be carried and they were not to be removed from those rings and and it had this gold cover known as the mercy seat it was on the mercy seat that on the day of atonement the the blood of a sacrificial animal was 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 
was spread on the mercy seat and just to show the mercy of God to forgive sin. So this is such an important object in, in the life of, of, of God's people in Israel and their worship. And, and so the, the ark has this great history. It was carried by the sons of Levi, the Levites, during the wilderness wanderings. And as, as God protected and provided for his people, it was what, when the waters of Jericho, or, or, um, uh, of the Jordan River, uh, were split so that Israel could pass through. It was the ark that led the way. It was, it was carried at the fall of Jericho as they marched around the walls uh, of Jericho. It was later deposited in Shiloh, and it was, that was where the tabernacle uh, became the home of the tabernacle. So you, so you have this great history, uh, legacy of, of the ark, this tremendous success rate. Wherever the ark goes, there's, there's good things for God's people. Um, because, because it represents the very presence of God, the very glory of God. And when it was when it was present in the temple, then it was a symbol of God's presence among His people. And so, as we say, the ark's the main character of the story. It's probably more accurate to say God's the main character. Well, it is always more accurate to say that in Scripture. God is the main actor, main character in Scripture. That's how it should be. Uh, so, First Samuel four, in, in just context, chapter two, First uh, Samuel, you have we're introduced to Eli. He's a he's the he's the this priest, and he has these worthless uh, sons. And I won't go into all of it, but, but people were bringing their sacrifices to these. The sons were priests also. They would just take the meat and eat it for themselves. It's these selfish, uh, spoiled sons of Eli. Just awful guys. And so because of their sin, God tells Eli that his sons are going to die and that he's going to lose his eyesight. And so you get to chapter 3, and Samuel, the prophet Samuel, gets a vision from God. He's called as a prophet, and he tells Samuel that he's about to carry out his judgment upon Eli and his sons. And so that's where we get into chapter 4. And so in the, as chapter 4 starts, the, the scene is this. Israel's camped near a Philistine army. Philistines are like their crosstown rivals. These were the, it's, they're, they're always in conflict with the Philistines. This is a Goliath's crew. And so... So they go to war with them, and again, this greatest threat of theirs, and the Philistines are this, this, this ferocious army. They have well-trained soldiers. They, had, they have a, a, a higher-tech military than Israel had, these, these, these uh, hurling javelins, and they had chariots, and they had you know, the best armor. So this is a well-trained, well-equipped army, and Israel goes to battle against them, and they're defeated. 4,000 Israelite soldiers die in battle. So verse 3, that's where we pick it up. And when the people came to the camp, the elders of Israel said, Why has the Lord defeated us today before the Philistines? So they see this is God's doing. They don't, they don't attribute it to the Philistines, but the Lord has defeated them. Let us bring the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord here from Shiloh, that it may come among us and save us from the power of our enemies. So the people sent to Shiloh and brought from there the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord of Hosts, who is enthroned on the cherubim. And the two sons of Eli, Hophni and Phinehas, were there with the Ark of the Covenant of God. <laughs> so, so remember, remember how the Ark apparently helped others so many victories, so many miraculous events. Why not now too? So let's go, let's go get the Ark. And so they send for it, thirty miles from the battle in Shiloh. 
So if you just think from Fayetteville to Buckhead, that's about 30 miles. So they go on foot through desert, through hills, valleys, make their way to Shiloh to get the ark. And despite God's warning that, and declaring that Eli's sons are going to die, they're the ones that are helping transport the ark uh, to the battle lines. And so, but this is, they're placing this confidence in the ark and the object. It's not in the Lord. It's this, it's this object. They saw the ark as something that could help them, kind of like a lucky charm. And so this is, it's again, as we're talking about awe and this struggle, that this is this misplaced awe. It's a very subtle form because this is a good thing, the ark of God, but sending the ark, we can't lose if we have the ark, this object with us. So the Israelites, they're confident. So confident that this will ensure victory. So, verse 5, when, they, when it comes into camp, they're shouting and they're rejoicing. And so they go into battle, believing they'll win, and they're completely overwhelmed. Destroy. 30,000 Israelite soldiers die in battle. Most Eli's sons die. And most devastating, the ark of God is captured by the pagan Philistines. So, verse 12 a man of Benjamin ran from the battle line and came to Shiloh on the same day with his clothes torn and with dirt on his head. So the same day, he's fighting all morning, goes in that hot afternoon sun, runs 30 miles back to Shiloh. Again, from Buckhead back to Fayetteville now. And verse 13, when he arrived, Eli was sitting on a seat by the road watching for his heart trembled for the ark of God. And when the man came into the city and told the news, all of the city cried out. When Eli heard the sound of the outcry, he said, What is this uproar? Then the man hurried and came to, and told Eli. Now Eli was 98 years old and his eyes were set so that he could not see. And the man said to Eli, I am he who has come from the battle. I fled from the battle today. And he said, How did it go, my son? He who brought the news answered and said, Israel has fled before the Philistines. And there also has been a great defeat among the people. Your two sons also, Hophni and Phinehas, are dead. And the ark of God has been captured. As soon as he mentioned the ark of God, Eli fell over backward from his seat by the side of the gate. And his neck was broken and he died. For the man was old and heavy. He judged Israel forty years. So Eli expected his sons to die. But he did not expect the ark of God to be captured. Verse 19, bear with me, hang with me here. Now his daughter-in-law, the wife of Phinehas, was pregnant, about to give birth. And when she heard the news that the ark of God was captured, and that her father-in-law and her husband were dead, she bowed and gave birth, for her pains came upon her. And about the time of her death, the women attending her said to her, Do not be afraid, for you have born a son. But she did not answer or pay attention. And she named the child Ichabod saying, the glory has departed from Israel because the ark of God has been captured and because of her father-in-law and her husband. And she said, this glory has departed from Israel for the ark of God has been captured. So this poor wife, her husband is killed in battle, her brother-in-law is killed in battle, her father-in-law falls and breaks his neck and dies, but most importantly, the ark of God has been taken. So she goes into premature labor, she names her son Ichabod, which just means the glory is gone. No glory. 
Because the ark is gone. The ark is, again, that representation of the very glory of God. So get to chapter 5, verse 1. Verse 1, And when the Philistines captured the ark of God, they brought it from Ebenezer to Ashdod. Then the Philistines took the ark of God, brought it to the house of Dagon, and set it up beside Dagon, misplaced all. And when the people of Ashdod rose early the next day, behold, Dagon had fallen face face downward on the ground before the ark of the Lord. So they took Dagon and put him back on his place. But when they rose early on the next morning, behold, Dagon had fallen face downward on the ground before the ark of the Lord. And the head of Dagon and both his hands were lying cut off on the threshold. Only the trunk of Dagon was left on left to him. This is why the priest of Dagon and all who enter the house of Dagon do not tread on the threshold of Dagon and Ashdod to this day. So this display, this, this idol is falling over before the ark repeatedly. This glory of God. So, so we go on in chapter 5 and into chapter 6 and there are all sorts of awful things that start happening among the Philistines. And so they get tumors and confusion and, and, and disease and death and weeping. And so, that, so they start passing the ark from one Philistine city to the next. It's like a, it's like a idolatrous kind of hot potato game or something. They're just passing this, this, this hop, this, this, uh, the ark around. This, this, and, and everywhere they go, there's just death that follows the ark. And so they finally give up and they decide to give it back to Israel out of fear. They're all going to be dead if they hold on to this thing any longer. So they load it up with golden tumors. I have no idea what a golden tumor is. And, and golden rats, and this is what the text says. And they put it on, they build this card and put it on this new card. And they hitch up two cows that have never been yoked before. And, and they send the card away. In verse 9 of chapter 6, they say, watch if it goes up on the way to its own land to Beth Shemesh, then he who has done us this great harm, then it, then it is he who has done us this great harm, the Lord. But if not, we shall know that it is not his hand that struck us. It happened to us by coincidence. So there's these five leaders of the Philistines that follow the ark and watch it, and, the, and it says that, they, that the cows went straight in the direction of Beth Shemesh. No hesitation. Clearly it was the Lord's hands who struck the Philistines. There is no God like Jehovah. And so, verse 14, the people of Beth Shemesh, they receive the ark and they make sacrifices to the Lord. It's back in Israel. Everything is going to be good again, right? Verse 19, And the Lord struck some of the men of Beth Shemesh because they looked upon the ark of the Lord. They looked into it, I think is the idea. That the Lord commanded them not to look into the ark. They opened it. And he struck 70 men of them. And the people mourned because the Lord struck the people with a great blow. Now, the better Hebrew manuscripts, and the majority of them actually give a different number, which is very different than 70. I, I Mind you, and I'm not... I, I tend to think that the higher number is, 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 more, is the correct one, but it's 50,070 men. 50,070 men. So just imagine the whole populations of Peachtree City and Fayetteville gone. And judgment from the Lord. So it just reaches a boiling point for the people. Verse 20, Then the men of Beth Shemesh said, Who is able to stand before the Lord, this holy God? And to whom shall He go up away from us? So they sent messengers to the inhabitants of Kiriath-Jerim, saying, The Philistines have returned the ark of the Lord. Come 
down and take it up to you. And the men of Kiriath-Jerim came and took up the ark of the Lord and brought it to the house of Abinadab on the hill. And they consecrated his son Eleazar to have charge of the ark of the Lord. And there's this period of calm for about 20 years. From that day, verse 2, chapter 7, the ark of the Lord Oh, the ark was lodged at Kiriath-Jerim. A long time passed, some 20 years, and all the house of Israel lamented after the Lord. Now fast forward. 20 years. 2 Samuel now. Turn to 2 Samuel chapter 6. David is now king over Israel. I know there's a lot that transpired, but just... David's king over Israel. He's grown up hearing the stories of God. He's grown up hearing about the ark. He's heard about God wiping out 50,000 Israelites because of their improper care of the ark. So verse 1, 2 Kings 6 verse 1, David again gathered all the chosen men of Israel, 30,000. And David arose and went with all the people who were with him from Baal, Judah, to bring up from there the ark of God, which is called by the name of the Lord of hosts, who sits enthroned on the cherubim. And they carried the ark of God on a new cart and brought it out to the house of Abinadab, which was on the hill. So how was the ark to be carried? Remember? Poles. Not on a cart. This was God's instructions. But So, so verse 4, and, and Uzzah and Ahio, the sons of Abinadab, were, carried, were driving the new cart with the ark of God. And Ahio went before the ark. And David and all the house of Israel were celebrating before the Lord with songs and lyres and harps and tambourines and castanets and cymbals, just this glorious scene of transporting the ark back to Jerusalem. Verse 6, And when they came to the threshing floor of Nacon, Uzzah put out his hand to the ark of God and took hold of it, for the oxen stumbled. Not supposed to touch the ark. They disobeyed by putting it on a cart, and now they're, they're reaching out to steady it. Verse 7, And the anger of the Lord was kindled against Uzzah. God struck him down because of his error, and he died there beside the ark of God. His swift justice. Uzzah's killed on the spot for his irreverence, disobedience. And David's not happy. Verse 8, and David was angry because the Lord had broken out against Uzzah. And that place is called Perez Uzzah to this day. So David was afraid of the, the Lord that day, and he said, how can the ark of the Lord come to me? So David was not willing to take the ark of the Lord into the city of David. But David took it aside to the house of Obed-Edom the Gittite. The ark of the Lord remained in the house of Obed-Edom the Gittite three months, and the Lord blessed Obed-Edom and all his household. Now fast forward again. So David sees how God blesses this household of Obed-Edom, and he decides to try it again. Verse 12, so David went and brought up the ark of God from the house of Obed-Edom to the city of David with rejoicing. And when those who bore the ark of the Lord, okay, they do it right this time, with poles, no cart, no oxen, they got poles. And when they had gone six steps, he sacrificed an ox and a fatted animal. Six steps, and everything stops, and they worship the Lord. I give thanks and they offer sacrifices to God for the mercy that allowed them to go six paces. God's glory and grace that are shown here, just giving them cause for celebration. And David, verse 14, danced before the Lord with all his might. I don't know what that looked like, but it was something. All his might. And David was wearing a linen ephod. 
So David and all the house of Israel brought up the ark of the Lord and with shouting and with the sound of the horn. And in chapter 7, God makes his covenant with David saying his house will last forever. David finally gets it. Verse 22, this is the climax. There is David's confession. Therefore, you are great, O Lord God. For there is none like you and there is no God besides you. It's just... This is just, the scene came to mind as I was thinking of this struggle and this, this battle and this misplaced awe that's woven throughout this and the, and the awful consequences that come upon those who direct their awe at something other than God Himself. And yet, the other side of that is, is the benefit of a, a God, God-oriented awe. God-directed awe. It's incredible. I mean, so you have joy and unity and all the people and peace and just this, this celebratory this joy in, in Him. So this is, again, this is just one of countless scenes we could look at of this, this struggle. Of, and when what God is doing, I think this is all God's doing. Think, why such drastic measures? Why would God do that? Why wipe out 50,000 people? Why let 30,000 soldiers die and 4,000 soldiers die? Why, why go through all of this? Why kill a man on the spot because he keeps the ark from falling off a car? Why not just you know, slap his hand and correct him and, 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 and just let him you know, learn his lesson? And Why do all of this? Because there is this war that's raging and God is after the hearts of His people that He made, that He designed for His glory. He's going to do whatever it takes to direct our gaze to Him and, to, and to, to, to help to cause us to trust Him, to cause us to love Him, to believe Him, to, to, to glorify Him, to worship Him and Him alone. He'll do whatever it takes. And this is, this is what we need because we, we still struggle. We still fight this battle. I'm going to close with just some questions. Before I read some questions, just to help us kind of detect any misplaced awe in our own lives. But Tripp says this, and just again reminding us where this hits us, that we are, this is us too. He says, too many of us live in a functional state of what he calls all wrong And so we are timid, anxious, defeated, struggling to hold on to shreds of hope that we have left. Our problem is not the size or difficulty of the things we face. No, our problem is misplaced awe, that's my word, and the havoc that it wreaks on our daily living. Misplaced awe will cause you to fret over people and situations. He will cause you to attempt to control what you cannot control because you think it is out of control. So this, is, this was David. This was, this was the Israelites in the story that we looked at in First and Second Samuel until God recaptured his awe and was on the Lord and the Lord alone. So, so, this is us. We, we live with this functional state of misplaced all often. This is the battle we still face as believers. And so just a few questions in closing and then we'll be done. How, how can you detect that in your life? What are some kind of diagnostic questions you can ask yourself? Where is my awe misplaced? Where is it misdirected? Not to God Where's my trust misdirected? Where's my worship? Where's my, where's my life not oriented to the Lord and Him alone, but it's to other things? Just a few questions. One, what do you tend to complain about? 
What are the things that you grumble about? Not having or not going the way you want. That may be telling. Second, I'm just going to be able to read through these. But what brings out your strongest emotions? Anger, sadness, or happiness. What, our, our emotions are little windows that kind of they, they show what's captured our awe. So, so what are those things? Third, what do you feel you need to have in order to be happy? I would be happy if, fill in the blank, that may be misdirected awe. And you may not say it, but that you think it. Man, if I could just get this, or if I could just go there, or if I could, if if my family would just look like this, if we if we could only get this part of our life taken care of, if 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 we could just move, if we could change schools, if we could whatever it is, what are you fixing your happiness to? That's that's telling. Fourth, what do you think about all the time? I mean, in the downtime, when you wake up in the morning, when you go to bed at night, when you have those moments to just think, where does your mind tend to run? Is it the Lord? Is it something that, again, it's just an indicator. Fifth, what do you spend a lot of time on each day? Sixth, what do you worry about? What do you fret over? What are you anxious for? What do you worry about losing? What do you worry about never getting, never having? Seventh, what would you have a hard time giving up or living without? Eighth, what do you what do you what do you escape to when you have when you're having a hard time in life? What do you tend to run to? Medication, entertainment, um, food, uh, just a nap. <laughs> I mean, what do you what do you go to? What's your default when you when you're having a hard day? When you're having a hard week? Having a hard year? Where do you run? That's an indicator. Nine, what are you most proud of of your life? I mean, when you, if you could just do some, if you could get a free pass to brag about yourself, about your life, about your accomplishments, about what you possess, what, would, what, are you, what, are you, what are you most proud of? What do you want to be known for? Finally, what do you, what do you talk about all the time? What do you lead in conversations with? What, what is the kind of the topic that just always comes up and you keep coming back to? Well, we have it, don't we? I mean, I think if, if maybe just one or two of those questions, if, if that's all that some of the others didn't resonate with you, I hope that a couple of them kind of expose maybe some, you know, we're talking about misplaced. All we're talking about, the Bible has all kinds of words for this. It's idolatry. And that's another word. Flee from idols. John says, flee from my little children, flee from my idols. And so, we, through Christ, we can. That's the good news. I, I want you to leave the skirt. I leave on a list like this. And you're like, oh, I, I see myself, I see so many things and all of these things. But through Christ, God has provided the grace that our, our awe of God, our orientation to God can be revived. And so, there is... Wonderful hope, and we see the progress of that in lives. And I pray that by God's grace, that your uh, your orientation to God is is more steady and and directed to Him now than it was last year, and that 
and, and it will be next year than it is today. God gives grace. Let's pray. Father, would you help us as we see these areas of our life where maybe we are misdirecting our trust, misdirecting our love, misdirecting our, um, our, our, our desires and, and our, our reverence and our fear and, and to other things. And ultimately, it comes back to just a self-focus instead of a God, Godward orientation, a Godward focus. So God, redirect our gaze to you and and um, I pray that when those, as we maybe think through some of these questions tonight, even these diagnostic questions, that we would confess things to you. If there's, if there's really obvious areas where we say, yes, I see it, God. It's this, I'm, I'm consumed with this. I'm trusting in this. I'm hoping in this. Or I'm so upset. I'm so angry that I've lost this. That if that's controlling us, God, that God, we would confess that to you. And we know that you are a merciful God and through Christ we have forgiveness and and would you direct our attention, our gaze, our confidence back to you. Um, thank you for the for what the provision that you made through Jesus Christ to, to, to have that kind of grace of change. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.